Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first ever episode of the Shakespeare series. This is the newest podcast series brought to you by MyEntertainmentWorld.ca. My name is Kelly Bedard. I'm going to be your host through all 38 episodes. Eventually, we will get to 38. We're working our way through the entire Shakespeare canon, accompanied by a new guest or guests every week, someone who really cares about a particular play. It's their favorite. It's something they have a lot to say about. We've hand-selected people who really know their stuff when it comes to Shakespeare, and I'm really excited to talk to all of them, a new person every week, about a different play every week. Well, every episode. Who knows if these are going to be weekly. So buckle up. Our first episode is what else? Hamlet. You can't not start with Hamlet. Uh, we're talking to Matthew Edison. He's one of Canada's great actors, film, television, tons of stage. He's currently the reigning winner of Outstanding Actor at last year's My Theatre Awards for his amazing performance as Killer Joe with Coal Mine Theatre in 2016. He had a lot to say about Hamlet. He's never played the role, but he's got so many, and maybe because of that, he has tons of ideas about the part, about the play, about its place in the larger landscape of Shakespeare in 2017. It was so much fun to talk to him. I'm hoping it's a great introduction to the series. There will be all sorts of new guests every week to talk about all sorts of plays. So I hope you stay with us. In the meantime, follow us on at, at MyEntWorld on Twitter and on Instagram. MyEntertainmentWorld.ca is the website where you can read all of our content, all of our theater reviews, TV, film, music, games, books, sports, whatever. Follow us on uh, the podcatcher. Make sure you search on your podcatcher for My Entertainment World. Get the entire My Entertainment World feed not just the Shakespeare series and other series that we're doing, but everything that we're doing. That's all. That's all I have to say. Enjoy our conversation, and I'll see you on the other side. As I say, like, I, I think there are probably other people more qualified to talk about the role, but I, that being said, um, my disclaimer is that of, of maybe all of his characters, with the exception of maybe Iago or a couple of others, that, but is one of the most enigmatic he, he's he's a, such a, a contradiction so many contradictions with him as, as, a, as a person that it, there's so much open for interpretation there's so many entry points I mean really one of the, the great things about that enduring things about that particular role is that because he defies interpretation in a way he is a blanker canvas to to consider why and who this person is and what what motivates them like a very complex individual where you can't say 100% one thing or another you're you've got a lot of room to to bring yourself to something like that so Johnny Goats Hamlet versus Tom Rooney's versus Christine Horns is going to be very uh, different and and, and necessary that, that's necessarily true of all roles but with Hamlet in particular a director too can have really interesting ideas and fun to play I think yeah and yeah. I think that's how something like this survives having been like the most produced play in 400 years, there's still room for new people to come in and do it, and it will be different every time. Yeah, and you know, he, I think there's a lot of discussion about whether, you know, we should be doing Shakespeare anymore, and I think those are good questions, you know, I don't think we should just do things or put plays on repeatedly um, for no, just, just to put them on. I think they should be tested, you know, is, especially if they're taking up um, time and resources away from other new voices and things you start going, you know, and do we need to see another Hamlet? You know, I think those are good questions. But I think one of the reasons why Shakespeare continually always wins the round, uh, seemingly two reasons. One, people, it's like the chicken and the egg. People like to go. Uh, they they are returned to these stories. So the theaters keep putting them on because financially it makes sense. And I remember going to um, uh uh, the Edinburgh Festival when I got out of theater school in New York and we went with this company we were doing two plays this play called Where Ravens Rule which was a, like a play about the war in Bosnia and I thought just a really I'd seen the play a production of it in a workshop and loved it I thought it was really perfect for that festival and it was really interesting and then I was playing Bassanio in Merchant of Venice and I remember talking to the producer one night and saying you know like do you think people are going to go to see Merchant of Venice and he said I'm not worried about Merchant of Venice I'm worried about where Ravens Rule I was like why that's clearly the the more exciting play and he's like yes in, in some ways yes because it's new and it's got a lot of ideas he said but it's Shakespeare and then with that comes this sort of brand and reputation and mm -hmm. which is both I think a bit of a thing against the 
it's, it's almost that's very close to the walk of shame, Laurent. Um, <laughs> um, you know, we just have a guest walking by, <laughs> just so people listening to the podcast know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, take um, your time. <laughs> the more someone works to avoid being noticed on something, the more I'll point it out. Anyway, I just sort of feel like there's good debate about whether we should be doing these plays but he, I think he just keeps getting done partly because it makes money because people want to see it and why do people want to see it because there's very these universal themes always coming back right greed jealousy love death power you know so it, because he talks about them in such a particular way and with such insight and humanity that I think people return to that and now we regurgitate those stories in mm-hmm. new and crazy ways well there's also something the first time you see Shakespeare it, it your ear does have to adjust to it and with something especially like Hamlet that the poetry of it is so dense it, it's not necessarily clear what's going on what everyone's motivations are and we'll get into that a more in more detail in a little bit um, exactly what trying to unpack what those motivations are but it not everything's clear the first time you see it so uh, most of his plays and especially the tragedies especially the classics like Hamlet they're they're more rewarding the third, fourth, thirteenth time you see it, um, and every new Hamlet you see is informed by the previous ones, and um, the it's a sort of like the repeat exper- experience actually enriches it in a way that, say, seeing the same movie four times might not, because it's the same every time. Yeah, that's a really good point, and uh, you know, but even with great films, you know, it's the same thing. Where if you're watching a particular Stanley Kubrick film or something, mm-hmm. where you, you know that there are so many details in it that they're meant they're you know when something is meant to be mm-hmm. repeat viewed and you know i think shakespeare had that same sort of uh idea i kind of feel like if he were writing today he'd be writing television because he it would have reached the broadest appeal of lower and higher classes mm-hmm. and it would have uh, if you have something to say write in the populist medium and, and and have your you know have have and it's money driven in a way so it, shakespeare was the same and i think there was a lot of like you know appeasing the king appeasing the people making sure their people paid because otherwise your theater died mm-hmm. and that kind of just hand-to-mouth uh, knowledge of co- common sense look we have to eat I have to pay these actors and so on I mean a lot of times you get into these plays and one of the most strangely beautiful things is when like a character comes out and seemingly in the middle of the story to sort of break the story for a bit and tell you tell you some jokes almost you know like and but there was a practical thing to that too because they had to change the scenery so you'd have a character come out and buy you time and for a writer i think to, to kind of go oh, okay i gotta change the scenes here and i gotta write sometimes the your, your best stuff or most interesting or compelling stuff can come out of these ideas and you know in plays like macbeth where you where this happens repeatedly where not only is it a great thing for the audience to feel they're a part of a secret but it provides practically the the mm-hmm. scenes to change and um I love that kind of pragmatism with Shakespeare that he has this incredible poetry and heightened ideas com- combined with sheer theater technical prowess mm-hmm. and imagination saying, we set the scene here and imagine this and now we're in Fortinbras and, um, and the tennis match of the, you know, mock, mock, mock and Henry V, the sound, using soundscape and playing with, you know, uh, the weather that they were naturally having. I love all of that. His very modern usages of plays and stealing you know blatantly from plots of old and and regurgitating them and and there's some there's something to be there was some talk i think at one point i'm not sure if this is proven or not but that uh king james the sixth uh was uh he would there in denmark um the king there had he was the prince the prince had died and he was you know there were three um pallbearers at the, his service and it was Rosencrantz like Moot or something and, and Gillenstern those were the three people that carried that and there's a rumor that uh, James the sixth had written a version of this play about his relationship with those people in Denmark and losing their son and stuff and Shakespeare in order to kind of curry favor with him rewrote it yeah. and made it this incredible piece uh, that's an interesting thought but again just a another sheer it would be so just pragmatic of Shakespeare to, to, to and then turn around and make a masterpiece well you know? and there's something 
fascinating about a personality of someone who would, to appease the king, write a story about regicide. <laughs> right? Sort of he, a little bit ballsy. It, it, you know, it's funny how much he did that, isn't yeah. it? I mean, even Mackers, uh, you know, I mean... Yeah, because that was express, explicitly written for James. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, he luckily he had a king, and I think a, that would love dark, murderous plots and loved these sort of themes of yeah strange power dynamic it's 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 amazing that he was able to kind of uh uh get away or she who knows get away with all of um this um this yeah kind of um biting the hand that feeds him in a way mm -hmm. and and yeah so, so deftly to because especially when you look at some of these translations these sort of almost unreadable plays that he borrowed from you could see you go oh yeah it's a kind of simple plot it's a whole other thing entirely to borrow that sections of this plot and this one over here put them together and then interweave this most incredible like uh, almost bach like structure uh to his to his pieces you know i remember working on othello for cbc and having to try and get this play down to uh, movie length and um working with zabe shake on that we discuss it some stuff during you know about scenes from direct field point of view but then going home later and trying to figure out okay how do we structure this so that it it's still people go yeah that's shakespeare not Matt Edison or Shazab Sheikh, but at the same time go like, wow, well, we'll just move this and cut this and move this over here. And like, and then you get inside it and you're like, that is, in it's, oh, he makes it so difficult. You mm -hmm. want to cut this, but, but you, you can't quite. And that's just because it's so beautifully built. Yeah. You know? I had a friend in college who did uh, Love's Labor's Lost and she just entirely exercised the subplot. Like, that was her version of, she's like, okay, it has to be under two hours. I'm just going to totally eliminate half the characters so I don't have to cut anything from the main yeah, plot. Exactly. So then she always, ha she had to send people in with, like, letters to explain what happened, quote unquote, off stage. <laughs> that was in the subplot. That's right. You have to kind of get yeah. clever about doing these things. Yeah. And then it just, it gets to a point where you're like, you know, is this worthwhile or is this, you know, like, I'm, you just start feeling bad. You're, like, chopping down a beautiful, giant, old red tree and you're just like I'm trying to make this digestible and palatable mm -hmm. in a TV format or something and or whatever the format and 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 yeah you've your work cut out for you li literally I mean yeah <laughs> so anyway I I find it kind of um but it's one of those plays I mean you know when Brana did his three-hour Hamlet for film um I was very curious about that I, and and you know, including so much of the language and how palatable it will be. And then when Baz Luhrmann did his interpretation of R&J, which I think is incredibly successful, you know, as an adaptation in a way, um, it, it, it should be reinterpreted. You know, they're meant that if they, if they don't have something to say to us today, we shouldn't be doing them, but they do. Mm -hmm. But to kind of, I think, perpetually keep them in a, in a box. And I'm, by that, I'm not saying not to do them in period or I don't think that's the box. I mean, it's more like through the filter of our times. I don't, I don't, I also don't mean we now have to set it in America or we have to do, I don't think we have to be that overt. It's more like you have an awareness of your time and you have, and when I think of Hamlet, you know, particularly not having played him and I think, well, um, you know, it's inevitable if you're an actor at some point, someone asks you, you know, if you play Hamlet, do you want to play Hamlet? And I think, oh my God, I used to resent that question. I was like, no, I, 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 it's got so much baggage around it. And, you know, I mean, it's almost, it's almost an impossible character play. That was my old opinion. Sort of like Stanley Kowalski or something. I mean, why do it? It's, every, it's you know, you can't get away from the ghost. And, um, <laughs> funny enough. But uh, then I thought, you know, this, he, he kind of, kind of keeps, nagging me a bit as a play because he's so modern to me I feel like he's very um you know he's he's you know I think the play says he's about 30 right so he's often considered like a teenager why is it that we have this misconception of Hamlet as being like school age is it because they talk about him going to Wittenborough and so we assume a student rather or something than a teacher or whatever but he's 30 at a time when, you know, roughly, the grave digger says that he was born on the day that the graveyard was, um, that his father won the graveyard in a duel, right? And uh, I think the play, The Mousetrap, talks about 30 dozen moons or something, and that means he's like, uh, I think 30, 30 years and 10 months or something. So they, it's, these are the only two kind of things. But 
the fact that there's this perception almost that he's a teenager, I think is an interesting in for me. And I go, what if I met Hamlet here today in the modern world, you know? I think he would just kind of annoy the shit out of me. <laughs> like, I would find him very, you know, he's a manic depressive, he's suicidal, he has, um, he, 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 and I'm not saying this to be, you know, it's not about judging him in a, in a negative light, it's about looking at this character, looking at the man or whatever, I'm going, you know, what would I genuinely feel? And um, I, I would think, you know, he's, he talks about, you know, his father's death, you know, the meats are not even cold yet, and so, but it's been six months, and it's not to say that someone's grief shouldn't be however long it is, but, you know, he's a prince, he has basically one friend, Horatio, the other two sell him under the bus, so, I mean, what is it about this guy that is not particularly likable? I think that's a really fascinating Hamlet to me, because it would be so much more impactful when we find out he's right. We, we, would, we would come to him with this, what an annoying little brat, he just can't get over like what if you know it was a John Updike novel he wrote Gertrude this book called Gertrude and about um, the idea that Gertrude was deep deeply always in love with Claudius and she, and he with her and that when the king they that they had plotted to have him killed but then when he was killed it was like oh thank God because he, the king was actually a prick and he wasn't good to her and Hamlet loved him but he had these idealized view of him and so they 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 murder him and you know things go south but it was more like first of all Gertrude's not just this like can I like this like woman who just needs constant attention and which does feel like in the in the I mean in the play and um, she would have a little more active role maybe even a little bit more empathy about what's going on with that story and so sometimes I think well, what if he's just like a guy who's like parents got divorced or you know and that 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 grief um, define begins to define him and because he believes this ghost of his father which you know the there's no evidence to say that that ghost doesn't exist necessarily in the play but however if you take the premise that Hamlet may not have a ton of friends mm -hmm. that he's kind of annoying he's also uh, ferociously intelligent in an annoying way he uses wit in a very cruel way with a lot of people in this mm -hmm. and he doesn't seem to have a lot of empathy except for his own grief so taking this kind of filter of him a little bit you start wondering well what if the the people on the watch were like hey let's tell hamlet who who's going fucking crazy oh we saw we saw his dad up here and and then and then and through his own kind of insanity he sees and and of course what does the ghost tell him to do exactly what he wants to do the problem is he he set himself this this trap of of fulfilling something he's simply not he's a boy in a lot of the man child in a way he's not capable of doing and then you get this aggravated problem and mm -hmm. that that you know I mean I don't know if I might age out of this part and I don't think I don't know if I'll get a chance to do this but I I often think well I want to see a Hamlet done I want to see a different a version of this where we go oh that kid reminds me of this really annoying kid I know that my friends have he's his son he just kind of like you know he's just like where's his grief like mm -hmm. you know a cloak and and uh, and and somehow some some he's not so far away you know he's not this dusty old thing in the back of this thing, you know, he's just... He's not up on the crazy Shakespeare pedestal. Yeah. He's just a guy. He's a, he's a, yeah, he's a complicated, mm -hmm. charismatic, uh, like, you, you know, I mean, uh, like Horatio says, here's a great mind overthrown. He is in a, in, in a remarkable intelligence, maybe even slightly, you know, you don't want to say necessarily he's like on the autistic spectrum, I don't think there's any of that, but it's like he, it's, he's borderline, um, he's prime for borderline personality disorder. Mm -hmm. And not to add yeah. too much of that onto this, but for me in the modern world, if I were to look at this guy, I'd think, wow, this, this guy has had a huge shock of grief to a person who was not, he's a bit of a misanthrope, well, he's a misanthrope. He doesn't, he claims not to like men, you know, like, like he's turned off by people. Mm -hmm. So, including himself, he doesn't even like himself. So this guy, he just is either prime, for suicide, and he's on a course. Um, last time I read this play, it was maybe f uh, f three, four years ago, and uh, I remember reading over the um, couple of things a little more carefully. Like one, the play, the mousetrap, the play within the play. I thought it might be fun one day to like just direct that little play into itself, and then um, the gravedigger scene, because it's such an it's such an anomaly in a way. 
this piece, this sort of separate entreact, and and yet there's so much information about it, and it's so entertaining. And um, this idea, that he says, you know, be, because you know, when I was thinking, trying to find out how old he was, and I was reading, and I was like, sort of like, why? I always thought he was like. 18 or 19 or something. Yeah, he behaves like a, a He's teenager. emotionally stunted for sure. Yeah. And he's almost in a, in a contemporary sense, he's almost like that perpetual student, like the kid who graduates, doesn't, doesn't <laughs> know what to do with his life, doesn't want to get a job. Yeah. He comes from such a place of privilege. He just goes, hey, mom and dad, I think I want to go to grad school. To- totally. And he just keeps going. And yeah. Piling the and they're like, yeah, $50,000 or yeah. <laughs> marks in, in debt. And... Yeah. Comes back to court and he causes some problems. And they're like, just go back. Please go back to school. Yeah. Please. You're just so annoying. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah I, you know he's also got this like um, this Shakespeare says the, the gravedigger says to him at one point um, about the graveyard because his father won it in a duel by killing Fortinbras' father that he is the inheritor so he's in some ways I don't know I don't project too much but I I do think Shakespeare is he's very aware of his own writing in a way his own ability to turn phrases. To say that he is the inheritor of the graveyard is an interesting conceptual idea about the play. That, that in a way, if, if I went down this road further, it might be that you could say, for this type of person who is obsessive, who is manic depressive, I mean, who has depression, mm-hmm. who... Uh, Which are often hereditary things. Yep, and he, yep, and so he could have inherited this Maybe from his father, we don't know. But he could also just—it's just this type of person that they will—they're—they're they're bound to walk into their own grave. They're bound to. This is an inevitability, and in the play, it is. Yeah, he even leaps into Ophelia's grave. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So there's this kind of—we—we um, we, we see him generally as this kind of um, almost hero-like figure, and I don't see him that way necessarily. I think he's a complex very sad tragic and yeah beautiful soul in a way but too fragile too self-involved in some ways to handle the harshness of the world um it granted i have not been someone who's had their father murdered and the feelings of vengeance are as we know from art are very strong um not to take that away from him but or just to denigrate his emotional reaction to something how would i know what that is but to to just to for everyone else in the play to think it's a bit much uh, for the source of all of his evidence about this to be a ghost it's open i think for the possibility to contemplate the idea that hamlet's not um he's he's premeditating he's setting things in motion that are inevitable and um claudius's own guilt is, a, is its own trajectory with Hamlet's and they're in a, a crash course where what happens but a lot of other people unnecessarily die and uh, you know mm-hmm. it's a full tragedy <laughs> well and you when you talk about the contemporary lens and that not necessarily being about setting it in you know Canada in 2017 or anything like that but I think one of the ways in which that's that's very applicable to Hamlet is this idea of mental health and madness and the ways that um, just the history that has followed since Hamlet was written has given us a better understanding of what actually that is. Um, so, you know, contemporary ideas that we bring to Hamlet, whether it's set, no matter what year it's set in, is an understanding of recognizing that that is depression right. and what happens to Ophelia I think makes the most sense mm-hmm. in the context of just crippling depression rather than some quote unquote madness where she just loses all you know senses um, mm-hmm. and then because she's so in love with Hamilton yeah she's just driven, <laughs> driven mad. mad by his lack of love <laughs> well you know that it, it's an interesting it's an interesting prism to see it through this idea of, of mental illness in a really clinical way certainly the production in the park Last year, not this past summer, but the summer before, with mm. Frank Cox O'Connell, mm-hmm. he literally was cutting. Yeah. They turned Rosencrantz Guildenstern into one character who was his therapist, right. um, and that was something they really heavily um, played into. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really cool. I mean, it's great. I mean, I first of all, it is an interesting 
it is something going on in our society right now. The only point of putting plays on now is to talk to the society we're in. Mm-hmm. So we're not trying to do Shakespeare's Ghost Proud. We're trying to talk. We're, we're using great art that was happened to be, mm-hmm. you know, 500 years old to establish a, a new conversation. And um, yeah, and I think if it's always fascinating to see not forced like rammed. Uh, you know just kind of you know crammed in ideology on top of these plays i think you know is there an idea in the play that 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 is hatched simply by virtue of existing today what how does that impact us back then we would have thought this what is that now Mm -hmm. and um certainly you got to wonder about depression and and i i'm not one for necessarily relocating his plays I, i think he's very very specific about why his plays take place where they do we years ago it was involved in a production of uh, Romeo and Juliet and the idea was to set it in Bosnia and that it was you know Serbian Croatian and that the, the, the Paris was the United Nations kind of thing but you know it's a very for me it doesn't really it, a it's not necessary I think the audience is actually more prone to consider those things when left a little distance to go, wow, that is just like today, you know, versus going, this is Bosnia. Because also, what does the poor actor who says in Fair Verona, where we lay our scene, does that line just get cut or do you change the state? And then also, there's something to be said about Italy and passion and the type of cultural personality of Italy that's infused in Roman Jewish. Same is true with Hamlet. Denmark is a, like, you know, Canada, it's a cold, dark climate and... Um, I mean, it's not this, that's also a bit of a cliche, but there's this idea of this um, starkness and, and madness and because it's dark and because it's cold and we simply, in Can- you know, in Canada, we, we also share a lot of these, um, you know, connections with that. And, it, it, and it's, I'm not saying these, they shouldn't be done. Like, I'm not saying like, no, no one should. Or kind of, I, I, that's what I think is great is that everyone should try everything. But sometimes I think, well, if you're, if you just said it, in if you said it in the location the location should be saying something new about the show not not just uh, a comment on not just to set it in canada that doesn't do anything for me just because you're saying canadian names and you how does that new idea of putting it here if you put it on a reserve that changes the context that's interesting if you put it on if you put it on a, a the, the arctic on the you know, north shore or something like Anyway, I, the fun thing is, is that there are op- it is open to sort of in- interpretation and to thinking that maybe there's different ways of viewing these characters through a, a bit more of a modern perspective. Mm-hmm. Why not? We, we've seen them in a million ways. Well, there are there are certainly dynamics that emerge in a contemporary production that just sort of whether they bro- came up at all in a in sort of olden days is is hard to say, but they certainly were not discussed in in the original productions which come up all the time now you'll often see a female Horatio and there's often like some sort of subplot there Mm -hmm. and she's purposely contrasted with Ophelia all of these things get brought in Um, certainly the Oedipal conversation around Hamlet has come in in the last century yeah it's a new idea right yeah but then it wasn't then that was done a million times it's not to say too like that's all those things are fascinating I don't think psychology can't be applied or shouldn't be applied to these places I mean as an actor you're doing that anyway you're Mm -hmm. trying to find out why how people are thinking what is wrong with them I mean is is there something wrong Uh, do they you know is is is, uh, does it does it come from the play though or is it come from just an idea that you impose on the play and those are sort of different things sometimes like you go okay well if you just if you go Hamlet's a, a crack addict he's addicted to oxycodone okay fine uh, that that's a possibly interesting idea and does it come if, if you make it work in the play and you go yeah like, that explains oh I've never thought about that well no wonder he I don't know kills Polonius or something he's mm-hmm. he's, he's just mad at this point but then do you write off what it is he's driving at because he's just on a drug so I, there's these like I, I love a new idea and I love to see what new every time you know you've got a new person in there I want to see that combination between the director's vision and the actor's vision for what that and when there's a good alchemy between those two things where the world that that like 
that character connect that actor connects with that part in a deep way. Because frankly, to see to watch a Hamlet where the actor is not connected to the part in a way like that, like if you don't have a good Claudius or a good Hamlet um, uh, in particular, uh, but also Gertrude, you're in for a long, awful night. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, my my teacher in New York used to say, I said, I think I was gonna second act because I couldn't afford to see plays, so I'd second act everything, but uh, which was second act of um, like Ray Fiennes. Hamlet and uh, he was asking, you know, who's who's in it? And I said, Ray Fiennes, and I was like, okay. And uh, and then mentioned the Claudius, and it wasn't crazy, but so he was like, no, I'm not gonna go. And I was like, why wouldn't you go? It might be, you know, he's like, ah, it's too long, too long of play. You need really, you need chops <laughs> for those, right? It was probably just an assumption on his part, but when you get something and you're watching a really interesting Hamlet, that personally, that actor has something to say with it. And um, they have the most lines in any play. They have the most opportunity to to misrepresent something, or to just if you're just trying to fulfill a director's vision, um, and it's not symbiotic with with yours. It's it's sort of can be a, a bit masturbatory, you know, in in either direction. Well, because there are also just even in the most stripped down of productions that d isn't trying to apply any sort of like larger notes about the play, uh, there are so many individual small little choices that any Hamlet has to make. You know, how much of the antic disposition is put on? How much is him he really going? You know, losing his mind a little bit. Um, how much does he really love Ophelia? Why does he say get thee to a nunnery? All of these questions are totally different in every single production. Do you have a take on sort of how you would approach those things? Well, I personally, I would filter it through his own self-obsession, his own narcissism. So his treatment of both women is brutal. And um, I think Ophelia is already a sort of fragile, tragic character. She's not unintelligent, but she's treated so. She's um, kept like a bird in a cage. Her father treats her absolutely I think there's an argument to say some people would say he deserves his death I, I don't think so he's he just a fool basically he has great advice to Laertes he gives hypocritical uh, advice yeah, absolutely Gravity is the soul of wit and then I'm gonna talk for a half hour exactly because I know himself be true here let me hide behind a curtain yeah but and it has a couple of other purposes right he it makes him funny to the audience but when it dies it also creates em empathy for him because he's a fool he doesn't, you know, what, one of God types of God's fools are that they, they, they unwittingly help fate achieve its goal. And, but their unwittingness makes them innocent, right? I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, I, excuse is no, you know, ignorance is no excuse for the law, right? And he is maybe a man of his time. And uh, you might say, if it's, you're doing it in period, um, there's probably a lot of argument to say he's not different from a lot of other men at that time, the way that he treats them. Personally, if I were, I think, approaching it from this connection that I particularly have to this guy and my own interest in trying to understand somebody that I, that I feel very far away from is very compelling to me that, that to make a character both um, not particularly, who's not, who's not interested, Hamlet's not interested in anyone liking him and to play a character like that is exhilarating. It's uh, it's antithetical to your job in some ways with actors. Where you do, they'll talk about don't want you don't want people to like you, but there is something about asking for an audience's attention uh, to begin with to tell a story that has this weird dichotomy when you're playing a character who is um, completely the opposite of this type who would loathe this type of idea, and yet he's very attention get grabbing. He doesn't really think about others um, very much and. So I, I don't know, in his approach to scenes with the, with the women, it, I, I feel like it's, he undoubtedly, I think, has love for them. I don't think in some places there, it's easy for him to do certain things. He just is, that's, it, it ends sort of there. He doesn't have that added extra empathy to really, I think, it, it, he, he, you know, if he was like, oh, this is, um, or let's put, look at this a different way. What would be? What are his motivations for treating them this way? Again, it's based on this idea of which he has, he has spiritual evidence, n um, but nothing really tangible. And for that, he's willing to put other lives lives at risk 
uh, almost accidentally, stumbly, haphazardly mm. create havoc, awfully cruel to both women. And, you know, yeah, I, I think it's it might be an interesting... I don't know if I'm in the audience. I think it'd be kind of interesting to see this guy where we're just we just don't know if we like him, and but he's so true. We know this guy in society. We know this type of person, and they feel very current. and And he's very spoiled. He's a prince. He's not. People are not necessarily going around telling him, uh, you know, he's he's a a snob or an elitist or or uh, his ideas are they're no bounding in or founding in in basic fact. You know, except. His immediates, like his mother, and mm-hmm. I think they see him as a bit of a sick kind of person who needs help, and he does. He frankly, he does need help, but mm-hmm. um, and so he's it's sad, he's tragic, because he's not, I don't think, willfully mean spirited. He's just a little bit mad. He's a little bit um, almost schizophrenic, you know. It's almost uh, it's interesting to think of his idea of madness having just we talked about uh, Lear a couple days ago for the the Lear episode of this and this idea of madness and its relationship to truth telling and it's mm. almost like mm. Hamlet in his place of privilege suffers for a lack of a fool he doesn't have someone whose job it is to tell him you know Lord take away the fool yeah and he and, and he has the added difficulty of knowing that they're just saying yeah that they're just mm-hmm. because he's that intelligent and he mm-hmm. suffers does not suffer fools so even Guildenstern Rosencrantz and Guildenstern he plays with them like a cat does a mouse and mm-hmm. that's sort of cruel but it's also I might say he's bored he doesn't have someone to match with he doesn't have true Horatio is his truest friend and he is a true friend because Horatio sees through the madness and sees this incredibly incredibly uh, brilliant mind and this person who is suffering sees him for what he is and we today might do that with someone like we see someone behaving mad on a subway car uh, it could be hamlet walking up around and down thinking he just saw his, his dead father that would that would make sense to us in a modern context and yet all those people say we might be think that guy is a, a creep or a weirdo or a freak someone else working in mental health might say that person needs help and i'm going to um, there was a guy in the annex years ago when i was living in the annex area there was this guy who might still be there but he He's very tall and very um, large sort of guy, and he would go around and he would, when he was um, off his medication, he would kind of go right up into your face and he, he would say, do you have any money? Do you have any, any money? Any money or something like that? And just sort of monitor, but he would always go up really close to people. And you'd see women kind of dodging back and stuff. And when he was on his medication, he was a very, you know, sort of placid, calm, nice guy, and you know, quiet, you know. Anyway, one day he was crossing the street towards me and, Oh man, not again! This guy today, you know, he's coming up to me, he's coming up to me, and he had that body and that physicality. And sure enough, he's like, was right at me, and just before he could open his mouth, I took his shoulders, and I was like, "You're off your medication. You need to get on your medication." And he looked at me, then pulled back a little. His body shifted, and he said, "Thank you," and he left. Oh. And I feel like possibly, it's Hamlet could live in this world where he's both needs help, he's not getting it. And we're watching someone go go increasingly. Uh, I think this is a very common problem. We have a friend who is going, um, who is suffering from a bit of insanity, uh, not a bit, or suffering mentally, or mental health issue. And my friend Rory in high school was like this, and he he became schizophrenic in high school. Good buddy of mine, and my other friend uh, C R Avery. We, the three of us were we used to play music together and all kinds of things. And one day. He started just tilting his head and looking down, and he would not look at people in the eyes. And of course, we thought he was putting it on. We thought it was kind of uh, artifice, mm-hmm. an act. And then we there was a, an auditorium and uh, assembly, and in the middle of the vice principal talking in a speech, he walks down to the stage, sits on the edge of the stage with his guitar, and plays the song so inaudibly that no one could hear it. And shortly after that, he he was checked into um, you know into a mental health center. And which is where he's still today. This is years later. So, you know, I, I think he's, I don't think he's at that point where he's necessary. I mean, I, I don't know where, you have to, have to chart that, you know, when you're working, if I was working through this idea, how, again, without wanting to impose something just to do it, 
does this help the story in my mind? Does this make sense here as a person today as I see it? And does that also work in the context for the whole play? That it, that works for other characters as well. It, does that help these scenes in some interesting um, way? That I think would be fa a fun, interesting, fascinating Hamlet. You know, um, not the definitive one, as there isn't one. Yeah. Know, but an idea. If there was a definitive one, somebody would have done it. And exactly. Then it'd be done. Yeah. And then yeah. that's it. We wouldn't need to do it anymore. Yeah. And you brought up Stanley Kowalski. That's the problem with Stanley. Kowalski. It's almost the opposite. Stanley Kowalski and Hamlet is that there is seemingly a definitive one, and it's on film, and you can go watch it. And there's not much else you can do with it. Yeah. Why bother? Brando did it already. Exactly. Um. But I unless someone comes along, that's the other cool thing. If someone comes along and reinvents, I remember seeing Janet McTeer do a Doll's House in uh, in uh, New York years ago. Um. I've seen a lot of dolls' houses, but until someone else comes along, she owns that role for me. I mean, yeah. and someone else might come along and then do, it, and then I'll be like, that. Then they take over, they recrown the role, they they own it. Mm -hmm. And but some are so stamped, uh, you know, that it's very hard to get out from the baggage of that. And sometimes the over the over the impulse to to go so far the other direction doesn't help either. So. Yeah, and, and I mean, Streetcar is a fantastic, beautiful play and tragic and poetic in, 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 uh, in great measure. And, but, but Hamlet has more... Um, Opportunity. Yeah, and I would say a little more humanity and depth in terms of what its ideas are. Uh, this is a, the uh, Streetcar is a very profound story. It's very specific um, to these, this world and these characters. With Hamlet... Uh, the the broader ideas of death and guilt and vengeance and madness and these are sort of larger themes in some strange I mean madness of course in streetcar as well but uh, and bullies and things like this but mm -hmm. a teacher said once that um, that uh, Marlon this is interesting he said and he went to this Marlon went to the same school I did he was like if he said if um, Marlon were a better actor he would have held back a little because it's not about Stanley Kowalski. Mm -hmm. It's about Blanche Dubois. And um, I, all that, that, that comment haunted me for a long time because I was thinking like, is that true? Or, I, mean, I don't know, I mean, it's so good. But the more I think of that, or mature as, as an actor, I try to think about, I, it hits me differently. And I think he's, there's, he's right in a way. I mean, part of me goes, why hold back? You need know, to bring everyone up. <laughs> Yeah, you know. there's there's certainly an argument to be made that everyone in the play, whether you're you know servant number two or whomever, you play it as if you're the hero of your own story. Everybody does that at the same level. The whole thing rises. Yeah. I don't know that it's his responsibility to make to, the play about Blanche. Well, to him, I, the story's about him. Exactly. I, t I that's why I think that the um, the statement has uh, bothered me for so long. But I think the thing that I agree with it that I like is that, and I, I'm sure people will disagree with me on this, but I. I feel like, um, let's put it this way. I remember doing proof and Martha Henry said that one, one day I was doing this uh, at the end of act one, she gives me a key and uh, to her, to the, the, the problem that she'd solved math problems upstairs in her father's desk drawer. And, uh, I would receive the key and I knew just from the, the way that the set was set up that I had this table directly behind me and I would take it off and out of excitement turn around and run right into this table sort of a gag bit and we did it uh, we were doing it in rehearsal at some point it came something that I tried and it came up and it fun and funny and we did it and I think we did it in the first preview got a big laugh and and then Martha uh, notes said uh, you know that bit that where you get when she gives you the key at the end of that when you run the table and I was like yeah she's like cut it and I was like but Martha, it's like it's getting this great laugh, and she's right, she's right because, uh, and it was so hard. In fact, I think I did it once more, and no, I know I did it once more because Hardy T. Line busted my balls for it, but he was right too. He just did it in a very shitty way, but <laughs> but he, he was right, and so was Martha because it's like you know this is not his this is not his moment, and it's we, we should be focused on her, and it doesn't matter that it's a great that it, that it's funny or that it it worked. It's about where should the audience focus and attention be, and I think a better actor does hold back a little bit, or does understand where's the focus need to be, and is it Jenny Patterson's idea to take that moment from me if I'm doing something like that? I don't know. I, I think that that would have just been stealing the moment a bit, and it was, 
and even though I'm looking at that from my own character's point of view, and that is totally within my character's purview to do that, um, it takes a, a good director and a good person beyond to go like, you know, maybe you could pull back a little. This this moment could be more effective as a, in the play because we're watching her, not you. You yeah. know. Well, it's almost a theater theater director's job to replace the camera in film, right? In film, you're, the camera tells you where to look, and the in theater, the director is the only is the closest thing we have to that idea of trying to direct the audience because we could just spend the whole time watching, you know, the person in the back who's having their own whole melodrama. Couldn't agree with you more. That's really well put. Yeah. And you know, I mean, we talk sometimes in acting about close-ups and things, and and I love that because it's it's true. You can bring an audience into a close-up by doing a number of things, and you can also shoot in the, into a wide by doing other things. Robin Phillips was a, was really good at this. He would use sound and various things to draw attention um, to pull the camera, as you'd say, like over here, while something else would happen. And by the time you look back, it was, mm-hmm. you know, I know a bank one to the table was one where. You know, they'd be all at this dinner table and uh, someone would be, you know, eating and some accidentally spill the tea or kind of thing and Bank would pop up somewhere while we were looking at the tea and you're at, the, at a kind of a confined shot at the table but you look away for a minute, Bank was gone. gone. You, then you, you look back, he's somewhere else. It, anything you can do in these plays to make the intangible tangible is a benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of film and, and theater though, uh, Hamlet has been adapted you know, thousands of times, and there are lots of film versions. It's been played tons of times. Do you have any favorite versions that really stick out in your brain? Uh, I mean... Other than The Lion King, which is like the all-time... <laughs> I was going to say, The Lion King. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's like I take pieces. Uh, there are pieces of... Uh, I remember seeing Olivier's. There were pieces of that I liked. There was kind of an effeminacy and to to his Hamlet that really worked. It, the thing about that that it, that role, his version taught me was Hamlet's almost weakness, his boyishness, his inability to physically do things. Like you know, he's a very good dueler when it comes to it. Right at the end with with Laertes, um, that's if we take the idea that Laertes is good. Um, but at the same time, he's almost surprising. You know. Um, because he's this sort of wilted, pale flower, and uh, which which helps a lot of the stuff in the play. If he is an inability to act, it makes sense. He's not some brawny Macbeth. He's this. He's obsessed with thought, and that's where he lives in his brain. So, um, you know, tipping swords with poison may have other alternative. You know, other. Um, anyway, um, I. I think uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, Hamlet. I I also strangely enjoyed. I don't. There was a bunch that I don't know if it worked or not. But there were. I loved the that he took the play and, and actually made it cinematic and the broadness of scope, the beauty of the the idea of Elsinore being like almost like this almost Harry Potter esque Hamlet, you know, where quite large and iconic and. Um, he also, this, but you know, he was Hamlet again. It was a bit of a celebrity, which was interesting too, as the idea that he's he, as he might be. He was, you know, he's plays, the prince. He's the prince and the and well loved by the people. I mean, Harry was just in town. It was a whole hullabaloo. Totally, <laughs> it was a big old deal. Yeah, exactly. And he's, you know, he's 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 well loved. They're in mourning with him, so he's well loved. It's the irony with him is that he not, he doesn't particularly love the people or have a lot of respect for them, but he is loved by them and. Uh, so, yeah, and there were some scenes in, uh, I, I, you know, I always love anytime you know, Derek Jacoby shows up in something that's nice. Um, yeah, so there was, there's, I don't know, stuff I took away from each of them, but I don't know if I've seen one that I've been like. I also loved uh, Ravi Jane's uh, Christine Horn's production. I think there was some really interesting, great ideas in that play um, that was were invigorating and and I also thought Christine Horn did a great, that she works well for that part too in the same way that this, um, a little bit of that almost Olivier type character where uh, sullen, depressive, struggling emotionally under the weight of uh, the intelligence. And um, so, yeah. Uh, and, uh, and I thought Ravi Jane also brought a lot to that show. And um, anyway, 
I don't know if there's one I've seen completely from beginning to end where I've just been like, that is my definitive, but mm -hmm. certainly pieces of here and there. And we end every episode of this podcast with one question. It's a different question each time, but it's the same question. What do you think Hamlet's about? Um, that's, that's a tough one um because yeah, i don't want to just um give a synopsis i for me i guess one of the things that i i've been thinking about lately is this this idea of almost like the the combination of sick mental health into uh, sickness in combination with uh, context real context so we have for instance you might have someone who was born a, a psychopath but they don't go around murdering people or even you know stealing white collar jobs necessarily but the combination of that in context with their upbringing makes them makes them makes makes their history much more dramatic and everyone else around them so there's almost like two stories going on here. One, the, the, the grief on a particular individual who is incapable or unable to um, work through it um, in conjunction with bad behavior uh, and uh, around them, you know, no, no good will come of it. Yeah, I, that's all I got for now. Um, and do you have anything you want to plug, social media, all that kind of stuff? Oh, uh, I'm rehearsing uh, Marine Life at Tarragon, uh, played by uh, Rosa Laborde. And um, and then I'll be doing Bunny after that, uh, Hannah Moscovich piece, also at Tarragon. In uh, David's role? David Patrick Fleming's role? I didn't see Did the... See it at no, I didn't. I think there's, there's only one young guy in it, right? Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know. Do I get still get to be called young guy? I don't know. I don't know. I think you're I, the I guy. Know. Whatever. <laughs> I'm, I'm playing Carol uh, in the play. And um, I so I, I actually am kind of... Yeah, I'm curious. I'm looking forward to that. So um, I'm I'm a big fan of both of those girls' writing, and uh, yeah, they're very different writers, very different plays, and um, yeah, that's uh, and then um, yeah, that's and I have a TV show coming out in January called uh, Detail, and yeah, doing some writingy things. Okay, that's it. And can we find you on social media? Uh, yeah, I'm out on social media um, a little bit. I don't check it super often. Um, but uh, I do on Instagram. So the one thing I do is Instagram. Uh, I do like photography, and uh, I guess that's like a bit of a uh, a journal where maybe uh, uh, sometimes daily, sometimes a few times a week, I'll post a photo, and then I just sort of sync it up with the other ones. Um, but yeah, I'm not great at checking the other ones always. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. So that's our episode for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to search My Entertainment World in your podcast catcher to get the entire Shakespeare series as we work our way towards all 38 plays. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, all that jazz. MyEntertainmentWorld.ca is the website. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.